So hi, everyone. Welcome to the Music Business Podcast presented by HypeBot.com. I'm your host, Courtney Harding, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Jeremy Weinberg, who is the co-founder of Herdwell. Um, I will let Jeremy tell us a little bit more about what Herdwell is, but I imagine it's a company you're going to be hearing a lot about in 2016. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the show, and go ahead and tell us a little bit about what Herdwell is. No problem. Thank you, Courtney, for having me. Um, Herdwell is a company that I started with Andrew Graham and Connor Franta about six months ago. Uh, the concept was stemmed from my other company, which was Opus Label. And Opus Label I founded about four years ago with uh, the idea of actually doing these influencer-driven music compilations. And we started this journey about four years ago with Perez Hilton. And I, um, I have known Perez for a while, and I reached out to him. And basically, the idea was, is you you have this blog that reaches millions and millions and millions of people a day, and you're promoting um, all of these emerging artists. And mind you, this was like pre like streaming, you know, days. This was like when people were still actually, you know, the option was to you know buy the downloads on you know iTunes and various other places. And um, you know, he would promote these emerging artists. and all of a sudden the songs would go to, you know, number one, or they'd get into the top 10 charts just based on him, you know, getting behind these artists. And I said, well, you're not really capitalizing on this, um, aside from what you're making from your blog, you know, let's kind of see if we can get in and do these compilations. And, um, uh, you know, see where it goes. So we started the pop-up music series, and through the pop-up music series, um, we introduced on his compilation artists like Bastille and Capital Cities and Icona Pop, and um, the list goes on and on and on. And uh, we noticed that, um, you know, through these compilations, we actually gave a platform for new artists to be discovered and heard, um, as well as make uh, influence um, an imprint on the charts. So, you know, after, you know, his about, I think we're now going into his sixth or seventh, I think we're going to pop up seven um, in a few months. Um, But through his series, I said, well, if this is working with bloggers, perhaps this is work, this, this will work with YouTubers, uh, which is, you know, a different space because the YouTube space is people are connecting with you know, the YouTuber, you know, the, the fans feels as if they're friends or they want to buy into, you know, the idea of, you know, what these YouTubers have to offer versus Perez, who's just reporting news. And you could be a fan of Perez or not be a fan of Perez, but you're still going to go to Perez's site to, you know, find out information. So we started with Connor Franta and um, the first compilation was Crown before he started his branded you know, his new branded company of Common Culture, which it's now called Common Culture, the, the the compilation series. But we put out his first compilation with, you know, 12 of his artists. And it was just an instantaneous success. And uh, moving into the second compilation, um, we somehow, you know, became closer and, and friendlier than just, you know, your typical working situation. Um, 
And I said, you know, somehow, I, I don't know who, who or how it went, but somehow we all got together and said, let's start a company called Herdwell. And, and let's um, now not only do this with, you know, you, Connor, but let's reach out to your friends. Let's reach out to your colleagues. And let's actually now build a whole new business on um, doing these compilations around um, social influencers. So that's where Herdwell, um, you know, was introduced. Um, and here we are today. Excellent. So tell me a little bit about how the compilations work from a sort of just, I guess, technical perspective. So are the compilations basically the same as any label compilation that would have been released, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, where you are licensing the tracks from labels or directly from the artists if the artists aren't signed you put together the compilation and then how does that work are people buying physical copies of these compilations or buying digital copies or do you have partnerships with like spotify or apple music where these are streaming and then you would somehow get a cut of the streaming like how does everything sort of work on the more technical side of things so um yes we we license all of the music so uh, essentially, you know, these compilations are to um, introduce new up-and-coming artists. Um, so we really do try to find artists, you know, before they're signed. But, you know, in today's world, a lot of these small artists are, are getting signed up quickly. So, you know, we have amazing relationships with all of the record labels. Um, and uh, we just, you know go through the proper channels of, of licensing the music. Um, and then, you know, we have uh, a distribution deal. So, you know, we, we distribute through our distributor. And um, I'm very against streaming. Um, actually, streaming is the last. Uh, so basically, we introduce the compilations in three series. They, they come out first as a pre-sale, which is incredible. Um, J.C. Kalen's compilation uh, moved so many units, and um, the compilations uh, are bundled packages. So they uh, come with a poster, the CD. Um, for Lo Anthony, it was like a poster, a CD, and a pair of like pink sunglasses that said Landscapes on the side, which is the name of his comp compilation. Uh, J.C. was just a uh, CD and a poster, and uh, we also offer, offered a CD poster and T-shirt. And then uh, Connor's last compilation um, was a CD poster and a pen. And uh, we asked all of our influencers to sign, you know, some form of that package. So whether it be the CD or the poster. Um, then uh, after pre-sale goes, we then introduce, you know, and sell the uh, album on iTunes. Um, all of our, I want to say like the majority of our compilations have all hit like within the iTunes top 10 charts and have all been in like the top 10 billboard, um, you know, for their genre. And then finally, we put it on Spotify, but we never even announce it. We don't promote it. So, you know, my, I'm, I'm still in the business of selling music. I'm not in the music of selling streams because there's no money to be made in selling streams. So um, when you said that you were against streaming, I, I was on mute, but I gasped because 
I so rarely hear that. And I certainly would not have thought I would hear it from, you know, someone in, in your, your space and your demographic. So I'd love to talk about that more. So I get what you're saying in terms of the, you know, the, the monetization of streaming obviously is, is much harder than the monetization of physical product or digital download. So I completely get from a business perspective why you would feel that way. But, you know, your audience is, I would assume, primarily fairly young people who are really into YouTube celebrities, who I would think would be the type of demographic that would only be streaming, that would not be buying physical product, and certainly not be buying iTunes downloads. So I'd love to hear you know, why you think these kids are actually really interested in buying downloads and physical? Well, you know, Courtney, if you look at our albums on iTunes, the majority of them are bundled only, right? So you can buy the album or that's it. So the majority of the albums that we sell are 1099 or nothing. Um, you know, when you're looking at um, streaming, it allows, you know, and, and of course, I, I guess, you know, the fans can, you know, go to iTunes and they can see the artists and then they can go and, you know, find a way to stream it. But, you know, we're, we're in the business of selling music and, 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 and you might call that archaic or, or whatever you, you want to call it. Um, but this is a hybrid between like a fan club and selling music, right? Um, you look at, you know, generations and generations ago, you could join these fan clubs. My sister was in the Mary Kate fan club. She was in the uh, Spice Girl fan club. You know, she got a lollipop every month and a poster or a doll or whatnot. You know, these, these YouTube kids are the new fan club, right? We're, we're selling these packages where people are buying into this, you know, fan club, um, you know, idea. And on top of that, we, we really are about supporting the music. So, you know, when we put our albums on iTunes, I mean, when we put our albums on Spotify and whatnot, you know, we're offering nothing more than, you know, someone being able to go out there and just stream it. And, um, you know, as we know, the revenue on the streaming is, is so minute and, and small that there's really not a business there. Uh, I, I don't know if you read, but what was it? Pharrell had something like 165 million streams of Happy and got like a $2,000 check. I mean, so, so you know, if it wasn't available, look at like Adele. Her album wasn't available for streaming uh, until, you know, after the fact. And, and Taylor Swift. So, you know, you, I'm still in the business of capitalizing. It might be a smaller group of p- people, but the reward is much higher. Um, well- it, so I guess what's super fascinating to me about this is I understand like everything you're saying from a business perspective, it makes a hundred percent total sense, but everything that I have heard about millennials, and I assume that's a pretty big demographic of yours because these are people that are YouTube, you know, like YouTube stars, everything that the conventional wisdom that pretty much everyone puts forth about millennials is that they don't buy music they only stream. They're much more interested in experiential stuff than they are in physical product. Um, they don't want to buy things. Like, and it seems to me like you have a really, really amazing and interesting use case where you're saying like all that conventional wisdom is is garbage because well, I have this millennial audience that is like buying a CD package because they're fans of someone or buying a you know digital download on iTunes because they're fans of someone. And that's like to me that's like incredibly interesting that you've found this audience of millennials who 
are really bucking the trend. Well, I, 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 I don't know if, if everyone can do it, right? I mean, you, you look, we're talking about, you know, influencers and, 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 and influencers that have millions and millions and millions of followers, right? I mean, a lot of these bands that we're putting on these compilations, uh, you know, don't even have more than, you know, 20,000 followers on Instagram, uh, or you know, five thousand followers on 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 Facebook, right? So uh, I think that you know, for us with our social so, social reach, um, and our love for the artists that we're putting on these compilations, we're really in the business to you know help them make money as well, and. You know, it's funny because you, you do say, you know, we're in this generation. You know, listen, I get emails all the time from these 10-year-old kids that receive our packages, and they ask me what this circular object is that came with it, and we're talking about the CD. So, you know, we're, 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 we're playing with a few things. You know, we're, we're playing with the brain trust of our social influencers and these kids that are buying into the social influencers and what they like, right? And they want to support, you know what these social influencers like. I mean, Connor Connor had what? The the one of the top 20 or top 10 books on the New York Times best selling week for, you know, 16 or 17 weeks. Um so you can also argue with why would you go buy the book when I'm I'm sure you can, you know, Google it and and find it for free. Um people are buying people buy into it. People are people are buying into these tastemakers and and wanting to um consume things that they like and support what they like. And I think that's kind of the power of what we're creating here. And not every influencer can do that. And that's where, you know, we can talk about the social influencers that are making money versus the ones that are not. But um, the ones that I believe have a very core following and fan base, a, an authentic fan base, a real fan base, have these real fans that are attracted to um, consuming uh, these curated ideas and concepts and products that these influencers are uh, wanting to sell and promote. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit, the sort of broader influencer marketing space, because, you know, there have been two sort of somewhat diametrically opposed articles that have come out about it recently, where one has said, basically, it is next to impossible to make a living as a social media influencer, you have to, setting aside people that are already celebrities, right? So if you're Kim Kardashian, you're all set. Even if you're someone that's, you know, an actor or an actress that's fairly well known and you want to get into social media influencing, you're you're fine. But it's more people that are trying to build careers as social media influencers. It is very, very hard for them to make a living. And another piece that I saw recently didn't didn't directly address that, but sort of presented a counter argument where they quoted the rates for different, you know, social media influencers that were big in their space, but not necessarily really famous. So none of these people quoted were, you know, famous actors or actresses. They were just like well-known niche celebrities. And and they were charging, you know, a few thousand dollars to post an Instagram photo of a product. So, 
you know, you you do 20 or 30 of those deals and you're making a nice living. You're not, you know, rolling in cash, but you are making a middle class living doing very little work, really. Um, you know, so so where do you sort of come down on this? Is it realistic to think you can make a living as a social media influencer? Or is this something that's kind of only reserved for a certain number of people? I mean, I think it's reserved for a certain number of people, but I, I can't go and say someone new that has zero followers today and wants to go become the next big YouTuber can't go and do it. Um, you know, I think it's like any space, right? I mean, you, you look at, you look at bands that are playing the Roxy and the whiskey on the sunset strip. What are the chances of them being the next Radiohead? right? What are the chances of them being the next Pearl Jam? Um, but you don't want to discourage them and say, don't do this because it's never going to happen. Um, but it's extremely difficult. I mean, there's what, hundreds of millions of people on YouTube, um, different people doing different things, all thinking that, you know, or many thinking that they'll be the next Jenna Marbles or they'll be the next Tyler Oakley. Um, I, I want to say it's, it's luck, but I also want to say that I think once you get to that point, it's also having a nice team around you that wants to kind of help construct and turn it into a business, right? Because there are a lot of YouTubers out there that have millions and millions of followers, but can't necessarily figure out how to turn it into a business. And I think that's the difference between them and that's the difference between the Connors and the Tylers, the Jennas, and 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 a lot of the other influencers that are in that space. Yeah, and also, you know, the other thing is like, what is the ROI for something like that? You know, I don't know if you track, and it's it's very hard, obviously, to track with music. Um, but if I'm sort of if I'm a brand. You know, I'm even if I'm spending a few thousand dollars, that's still money out of a budget. I want to see return. And I feel like, you know, maybe the conversion rates from social influencers aren't as high as some traditional um, advertising outlets. But I'd love to sort of hear your take on this. You know, I, I think when we're talking about like return of investments and things like that, that's definitely up my business partner's alley more than me, which is which is Andrew, who actually also manages uh, Connor. Um, but, you know, from what I know and what I see, you know, in the music space and from what I hear, um, you know, four-figure deals is is very is, – is on the lighter side, Courtney. I mean, these YouTubers are getting five to six figures to do things like that uh, when they get into the larger space. So, um, you know, I don't know what the return of investment is. Um, but, again, I also think we're talking about the difference between the YouTubers and the social influencers that have, like, authentic real followings – and the ones that, you know, go out there and buy followers. Because you can you can see it quickly. You can oh, see yeah. it quickly in the people that like it. Um, but more importantly, you can see it in who comments and how many comments these, these influencers get. And that's really kind of how we judge, you know, who we're working with and where we want to go because we can really kind of differentiate. Um, it, it doesn't matter if you have 3 million followers, it's how many comments are you getting? How many people are actually interacting with you? And um, 
are real followers that want to engage. And and that's what I think is the difference is there's a lot of people that have followers, but there's a few amount of these social influencers that have a really amazing engagement. And that's where the difference is. It's the engagement. And how do you keep it sort of authentic, right? Because you know, I feel like that's the next big concern is, you know, obviously when you're putting together these compilations, maybe, you know, the, the Connor or whoever is bringing you these bands or maybe, you know, your friends are giving you demos and you're liking the bands and Connor's approving them. Um, but I'm thinking for a lot of other sort of endorsement deals with YouTubers whose brand really is their authenticity, you know, how do you strike that balance? If someone wants to give you I don't know, 50 grand to shill for a vodka or something. Um, you know, how do you sort of stop yourself from just turning into a pitch man or a pitch woman whose entire YouTube is now like, buy this product. It's well, delicious. I think, I, I, again, this would be more of an Andrew thing, but um, from what I see it, like as a, uh, from, from, let's just take me as a consumer. Um, Cause again, we're not really necessarily talking my world, but as a consumer, what I would see from someone doing that um, is they're just trying to push products that they're not authentically uh, interested in down my face. And, and soonly I unfollow, right? I mean, I was a huge Scott Disick fan and I unfollowed him because he's selling me mate tea, which I know he doesn't even drink, right? So, I mean, at a certain point, you need to weigh your long-term versus your short-term goals. If your short-term goal is to make a few million dollars uh, put in your pocket and, 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 you know, your career is over shortly, then, 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 you know, that's one thing. But if your, um, career is to grow, you know, with your fans and to have something a little bit more long-term, then I think that you're kind of more wise with, uh, what you pick and choose and, and what endorsement deals you do. And, um, you know, sometimes you're going to have to turn down, a big deal, but uh, hopefully um, something better comes along down the line. And, and I don't think it's any different with, you know, actors. Um, yeah, I was about to say, like, know. fans are also reasonable people. I mean, they can look at a, I don't know, Jennifer Aniston's doing some lotion ad, and they, you know, they kind of know, like, she's paid to promote this product. Whether she uses it or not, it's kind of irrelevant. You know, it is what it is. It's an advertisement. Call it a day. Um, so I think there might even be a double standard where you expect maybe, you know, viral stars or YouTube stars or online stars to be really pure, but no one's mocking Brad Pitt for doing like a Japanese whiskey commercial. Well, I think we have different fans, right? Like when you're a fan of like Tyler Oakley or Connor, you're like a fan of that person. When you're a fan of Brad Pitt, you're a fan of his acting, right? Like, I'm a fan of uh, George Clooney, but I, I, would, I would never, I don't feel like I'm friends with George Clooney. I don't feel connected to George Clooney. I just think he's a great actor. But when you're talking about people in this YouTube space, um, these fans of Connors and Tyler's and, 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 you know, Joey Graceffa's and so forth, these fans actually feel like they're their friend, right? They feel there's an emotional connection to these people uh, more than just your traditional celebrity, which I think is a, is, is a different type of fandom. Yeah, I think you're right. And I actually, that brings up another point that I wanted to talk about sort of more specific to 
younger online celebrities, which is this concept of like the emotional labor that they have to do in order to engage with their fan base. Because, you know, someone like George Clooney or Brad Pitt, you know, yeah, I'm sure fans come up to them when they're out having dinner, but they can basically just do their jobs, right? They can act in movies and go home at the end of the day. And, you know, if a fan tweets at them, like, I loved your performance, and they don't tweet back, like, the fan probably doesn't care that much. You know, they certainly don't have to. But if you are someone who the fans are connected to because they think you guys are friends, then you do have to engage at a much deeper level because that's a totally different type of fandom. And even if it's people tweeting at you and saying, like, I love what you do, and you're tweeting back at them and saying thank you, like, that's still a a time and an investment and labor that you have to do. So for these people whose fans have this really sort of much deeper connection than just liking their work, although I'm sure the fans do also like their work, how do you manage that? How do you balance that? And how do you keep from getting overwhelmed and too invested in just, like, tweeting back at everyone who tweets at you or replying to every YouTube comment? Well, I mean, I think that there's, you know, a level of reality in, 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 in everything, right? So, you know, you'll notice a lot of time. I mean, there's this whole Cameron Dallas, Nash Grenier, you know, uh, frenzy craze going on um, right now. I don't know who either of those people are because I'm old. I'm no, so sorry. I'm no, old. And I think a lot of my listeners are old too. So can you explain very briefly well, listen, just who I'm, those people I'm, are? I, I'm 30 and, and I've turned into, you know, following these, you know, 18 year olds on Instagram. Uh, so, so do not go through my Instagram feed because it looks quite creepy. But, um, you know, they're, they're these young pretty faces, right? I mean, you have, you know, the, the Dolan twins, which are these two, you know, twins and they're 16 and they take pictures of them, themselves in bubble baths and they have, you know, six packs and they're getting 50,000 comments on their photos, right? What? So, so you know, you Do look at someone- they have parents that allow you, this? You look at someone like Cameron Dallas, who, you know, had the number one iTunes movie last year or the year before that called Expelled. It was a movie that cost, I think, $700,000 to make and it grossed $10 million just off of iTunes. So, you know, and he is just a YouTube star. So, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, through these different activities that these influencers do, um, you know, they go on these following sprees where, you know, they'll promote something. They'll be like, oh my God, you know, if you, and we even do it with our compilations, you know, and, and that's part of a marketing thing that we do, which is, um, you know, show a screenshot that you've purchased the compilation and, you know, we'll follow you or, you know, we'll like you or we'll send you a private message. Um, and I think, you know, for that period of time, the fans get really excited. And then of course, you know, when we're not promoting something, there's that drop off period. Um, but again, I, I think there's a different fandom, right? I mean, when, if you're a fan of Justin Bieber, you're just another one in a billion fans of Justin Bieber. I think, you know, in, in, in it, you know, if you get to his concert earlier or throws you a t-shirt or something, it's a different idea than these influencers and connecting with these influencers and, and the fans that they have. Again, I think that our fans feel that they, they have a, I don't want to say there's a better chance. I just want to say that there's just a, a different type of emotional connection. Yeah. And I guess that was sort of my original question is, 
you know, how does someone like Connor or someone like the Dolan twins, which sounds vaguely like the setup for a penthouse letters story, um, you know, and especially, I mean, these girls are 16, right? Like, how do these people manage their engagement and their investment with their fans, right? At a certain point, they have to say, like, okay, I cannot answer every comment, even if it's nice, because that's just too much of my time. And then do fans sort of get angry because they feel like they're so personally invested that if you they know, don't get answered? I, I don't. I don't know. You know, it's like a meet and greet. If you're Justin Bieber and you do a meet and greet and there's 20,000 people out there and only 10,000 people make it in, are the other 10,000 fans going to be angry? Probably. Are they going to get over it? Probably. You know, so I I think it's the same thing. You know, Um, you just try to do whatever is manageable within reason and you try to reach as many people as you can. Yeah, um, that's fair enough. And, and um, you know, there's going to be the ones that get upset. Um, and then there's going to be the ones that love you more. So I just think, you know, it eventually kind of balances itself out. Um, yeah. You know, uh, just like just like any celebrity, you know, doing doing anything. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like selling tickets to a concert. You know, you're a super fan and you want to go to the concert and the tickets sold out because you're – you know, in, in seventh period, math, you know, fourth period math class and you couldn't get home fast enough to buy the ticket. You're going to get upset, but you're not going to, you know, you're not going to, you're going to just try again next time. Yeah. Or you're going to go on step right. up or something. So yeah. Yeah, exa- exactly. Um, you know, for someone like Connor, is there a path where he goes to a more traditional media outlet or does he feel like, and again, this is not specifically about him, but this is more sort of broadly about, you know, YouTube stars. Are there YouTube stars that really want to cross over at a certain point? Or do they feel like they can just keep going with YouTube and they don't need to necessarily engage with, like, getting a pilot on NBC or Fox or something? Um, I don't know. Again, I think, you know, different influencers have different strategies and different ideas. Um you know, we look at someone like Tyler Oakley, who um, I think is going to be on that show, Amazing Race. You know, he does hosting things on E! Entertainment and red carpets and things like that. So I think you see a crossover there. Someone like Jenna Marbles has a, you know, she's, she's you know, has a voice on, uh, you know, XM Radio's, you know, Top 10, Sirius 1, you know, station. Um, so, um, you know... Um, I think, I think every influencer is different, um, with, with how they take it. Um, and then, you know, and the kids that are posting, you know, half nude selfies, um, might be kind of putting themselves in a different category and class of different types of deals. I don't know. There's the ones that play it a little bit more safe, but might have, uh, a better opportunity at getting larger or different type of brand deals than, the ones that, you know, uh, I don't know. There's, there's different, you know, there's different people doing different things. So how is the sort of, I mean, you're based in LA, so you probably at least see this or, or are sort of aware of this. How is the traditional entertainment industry responded to this? Because what I've seen personally is, you know, people I know that are roughly 25 and older, still watch traditional TV. Everyone I know who is under the age of 25 
they don't turn on the TV unless it's maybe to watch like a sporting event, if they're a big fan of a sport. Other than that, they watch YouTube, they watch Netflix, they completely control their own sort of viewing schedules. They're very comfortable with content that is not super polished or professional. Um, And, you know, eventually these people are going to get older, make more money and become the mainstream consumers. And, you know, how, how has the traditional business responded to this? Cause I don't, I still see traditional labels or traditional t- TV networks just putting out the same old content that they've always put out when in fact, everyone under a certain age is just like on YouTube and Netflix and wouldn't be able to name a show on NBC if someone held a gun to their head. Um, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I don't have Netflix. Um, uh, and I, you I don't really wa- don't like streaming. You know what? I don't like, I don't like watching things on my computer. You know, I, I, oh, come home, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you can stream on your TV too. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm still like a valuist in a certain type of way. Like I like buying media, you know, and maybe it's cause I'm in that business and, you know, I want people to support us and our artists, you know, as much as I, you know, I still buy music. Um, yes, I don't even, I mean, I don't even have a paid for Spotify account. So, you know, and I'm just being really honest. Um, no, you, you know, you are, you break every sort of traditional rule, uh, which is great. I mean, that's awesome that you work in this super, super digital side of the business and yet you love physical product like that to me is really cool like I mean I, you I kind like, of broke all of the molds which is well, awesome it's like, it's like online shopping I don't like online shopping I mean I'll, I'll buy my groceries on Amazon dot you know the fresh thing I do that because I don't like going to the grocery store but like I like the idea of still you know physically being able to touch something right like like in terms of like clothing like I like going to the store and, and being able to try something on and if it doesn't fit you know bring it back I mean I I, I like that and I think that that's what we're doing, you know, with our fan packages uh, around our compilations is, you know, giving, you know, bringing back that idea of, of being able to buy something that you can physically, you know, touch and have and put on your wall and save. And it, it just has a value. It has a meaning. I think like when you just become a fully streaming business in this digital space, you kind of lose all value of what your business really is. And I'm not about that. Yeah, um, and people really cling to the the sort of physical things. And it's, it's interesting for me because I'm a very digital person. I buy all my books on my Kindle. I use streaming services. I use Netflix. I don't, I haven't bought a DVD in 10 years. But there are other physical things that I get really attached to. And I think it really depends on like what your passions are and what you like to consume. Um, and I feel like maybe it's, it's almost this counterintuitive thing where younger people are again, getting attached to physical product because, or physical goods because they sort of see everything digital as being really ephemeral. And they're like, okay, well this physical thing I can hold has actual value. Well, I mean, look at this revival of vinyl. I mean, you know, you look at a store like urban outfitters that, is, you know, I would say the demographic of urban outfitters is like high school and like college, um, you know, and what they dedicate like 30% of their store to selling vinyl, 
Something know? like that, yeah. And, and I don't even think these people own record players, you know? So, uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they do have a record player or maybe they're just buying into the idea of, like, having this really cool, you know, album that's on vinyl and they can hold it and they can feel it and they can smell it. And, and there's a whole artistic thing around vinyl and the color of vinyl and the artwork that goes into creating the, you know, the booklet and everything else. Um, or, you know, when you open it up, um, I just think people like that. Well, yeah, or like that young kid, the young kids, the 10 year olds who get the CD package and they're like, what's a CD? How do I play it? Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. But I don't have a CD. I like, I don't have a CD player in my house. I don't, I don't have a CD. I mean, my computer doesn't have a CD player. My car doesn't have a CD player. Um, you know, you buy a new car, they don't come with CD players anymore. You buy a new Apple MacBook or whatever, it doesn't have a CD player. Or if you're part of this young generation that is doing everything off of an iPad and, uh, you know, uh, a tablet of some sort, they don't come with CD players. So, um, Yes, I guess we're kind of becoming a generation that doesn't have CD players. But I think that people still like the idea of having a CD. Right. Somehow. I mean, I guess in someone's household, there is somewhere where they can play it. Um, And a lot of computers, I guess, have CD players. Maybe mine just doesn't. But um, I think it's more than that. I think, again, we're giving the full experience. You know, we're doing the poster, you know, that's signed and... We're doing, you know, one-off objects like T-shirts and pins and 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 different sorts of, you know, things, you know, sunglasses. And we're, you know, going to be evolving with our product line that, you know, our audience, you know, tends to enjoy. So yeah, so let's talk about T-shirts for a second because before you were working on this, you were working on the music tee, which was in 2010, I think. I think so. Yeah, 2010. <laughs> oh man, that was that a long was time ago. fun. That was a really fun um, time in my life. Yeah. So talk about the music tea. I mean, I remember. I'm pretty sure I wrote about it. I definitely remember hearing about it, and I think I got one at one point. Um, it's probably buried under 50 other t-shirts because I, you know, I don't keep music, but I keep t-shirts for some reason. Um, but yeah, so tell me about how that project went and, and sort of how you got into it and what wound up happening with it. Well, the, the idea of the music tea, again, another way to continue to sell music, to support artists, um, in this ever changing business. Um, I, I had a record label called Invisible DJ at the time, and we were located out of a store called Fred Siegel, um, in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, for those of you that are familiar with Fred Siegel or if you're from, you know, uh, there was, you know, a good 20 to 30 years where Fred Siegel was kind of like the it store to go to, to find out about the coolest and newest things, right? You can walk into Fred Siegel and anything that you bought was cool. Um, and it was like a lifestyle store. And my business partner at the time was the president um, buyer for that store, which introduced lots of lines like... Um, you know, Margiela and Givenchy and, 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 and Band of Outsiders and Tom. I mean, there's so many different brands that were introduced in that store. And, and um, I was a customer. And um, I was in the store one Christmas. And um, there was music playing. And this was pre-Pandora, you know, maybe early, early Pandora. But there was music playing in the store. And I said, this is really cool. Whoever curated this playlist is really cool. I got I want to meet this person. 
So a month went by. I finally met um, this guy named Brett, and we started Invisible DJ together. And we started doing these compilations for the store. And we, you know, put them at the register. And they were, you know, the Fred Siegel compilations. Um, every compilation had a different theme. After Dark, you know, The Drive, you know, CDs you, you can just put at a dinner party and so forth. We created these themes. And we sold 10, you know, 10, literally tens of thousands of CDs. I mean, without exaggeration, you know, in a year span with, you know, almost like every other customer bought the CD. And, and, the, and the concept was, is to leave the store and to recreate that moment in time. Right. So when you're at home, you can recreate that moment in time of being in Fred Siegel by listening to the compilation. And from there, we went off and did a compilation for Juicy Couture that we shipped to all of their stores. I think a lot of them are closed now or, or they are closed. But at the time, you know, Juicy Couture and their sweatpants was the hottest thing. And that's when we were doing their compilation and um, and various other brands. And. Um, we start, you know, we slowly, as we were reaching out to more and more companies um, and more and more stores, um, they were saying that they were taking the CD and the space for CDs, um, you know, off their shelves. They wanted more shelf space for other things other than CDs because now we're moving into this digital space and people are downloading music and yada yada yada. So I said, well, we want to be in all these stores that sell clothing. Maybe we need to create an item you can hang on a shelf or hang on a hanger that you can, or something you can fold on a shelf instead of an item that just, you know, collects dust at the register. So we created Music Tea. We teamed up with um, Girly Action in New York, um, which is a, a great music, um, you know, PR firm. And, um, you know, we, we said that, you know, this is how we want to do it. You know, we want to reach out to, you know, we want to reach out to these stores. You know, this is the type of press that we want. This is the angle we want to go with it. And, you know, the last piece of the puzzle was a manufacturer. So I reached out to these girls, Lauren and April, who um, own a company called LNA. At the time, it was like the hottest, 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 hottest legging company for girls. And they made the most amazing T-shirts, and they still do. Um, and I said, you know, do you guys want to manufacture? And they were in all these stores already. You know, so we were just adding like another line item to like their showroom into like their 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 presentation book for that collection. And then I started going to the record labels, you know, um, met with, um, you know, all the guys over at downtown. And the first T-shirt that we did was the Moss Def, uh, 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 you know, who, who's presently making headlines, I guess, for his visa uh, issues. But. Um, you know, at, at the time he, he was, you know, coming out with his new album and we did a t-shirt for him. Um, and it was like the first time an album was ever introduced in t-shirt form because when you bought the t-shirt, we had a deal with Nielsen SoundScan that it counted as an album sale. So now we were selling t-shirts and they were counting as album sales when artists were at, having a very difficult time selling albums because iTunes was becoming so popular, um, six years ago, seven years ago. And they were buying, you know, people are buying individual tracks. So again, we were selling an album, just like what we're trying to do and what, what we're doing with, you know, our influencer driven compilations. We're selling an album. Um, I've always been in the, in, in the business of wanting to sell an album because I believe an album is a piece of an art and, you know, it's something that you buy in full. 
And as soon as you start all, all the carding things, you're picking up. Why should artists even sell, even come out with albums anymore? Why even get excited about albums? Artists should just drop a single every month and it's hot for that month and the next month. another. You know, because if, if, if you're putting out an album and all you're doing is like buying the two songs you like, then why are artists even putting out albums? So for me, I'm all about the album and selling the album. And that's what we did with the t-shirts. And then we went to Interscope and then we went to Atlantic and, you know, we did about a hundred and something different artists um, over the course of two years. And then um, things kind of started to chase up where um, um, uh, we couldn't get the shirts like in the stores fast enough. We, we started running into a few problems where, you know, I, I guess instead of like focusing like crazily on our online space, we were more kind of focused on wanting to get into like every store. And the issue was, is the buying patterns for stores are so different than the release schedules for artists where I don't know if you knew, but a lot of artists don't pick their album cover artwork until like three or four weeks before the album even comes out. So, you know, with stores, you're like six months out because right now, like stores are buying for fall and, and winter of this year. You know, they're focused on like November and September and December of this year when, you know, the record companies are like, Oh my God, we need a cover for an album that's coming out like February 5th. <laughs> so, you know, the timing was very off. And, and I think that's what kind of complicated the concept with the music tea. But I'm bringing back the music tea. Um, I, um, the music tea is coming back with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, I um, am doing an entire series with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And um, we're basically going to be doing uh, T-shirts around artists that have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's where we are today. That's awesome. So when are those going to be on shelves, do you think? Hopefully sooner than later. Um, it's a lot more complicated getting rights for, you know, legacy artists than, you know, Miley Cyrus. So, um, you know, it's, it's taken a little bit of time. But, you know, I'm hoping within the, you know, the near future. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us today. If people want to find you and or Herdwell online, where can they do that? Uh, you could go to herdwell.com, um, uh, which is the same for all of our socials, um, Instagram, Herdwell, Twitter, Herdwell, everything Herdwell. Um, and there you can find, you know, up-to-date information on everything that we're doing. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time. And um, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, you too.